ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to the minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life or something like that. Well, the Adal is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hi, Scott. Hey, Willie. This show is a long time coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about the referendum result. And we're asking ourselves, I think, a fairly simple question. But as soon as you begin thinking it through, it becomes immediately really complicated. Do we know what the referendum result meant? I think the things that complicate it have primarily to do with the nature of referenda, the nature of votes that are straight up and down. In other words, votes that are a zero-sum game. But then as soon as you get through the inherent difficulties with that, there then become a whole lot of other things involving the communicative environment within which the referendum debate was held, the political environment within which the case was prosecuted, the fact that very quickly what was a, let's call it a public issue, a matter that evolved out of a process of remarkable democratic deliberation, and that was a question that was put self-consciously to the people, very, very quickly became something in which politicians had an oversized role. And it very quickly then became looped into a form of rhetoric, a form of public discourse that can never quite extricate itself from the political considerations and advantages that go along with that. I guess I'd also say the final thing is it's one of those topics where when you ask or when you respond to the question, what did the referendum mean, all parties who give their respective answers to it can't really be told, well, you're wrong. It didn't mean that. I think that can actually. Mm, But at the same time, all parties also have to say, however they voted, that there were things that were involved in the vote that went above their intentions. And one of the things that we have to do when there's a referendum like this is to acknowledge our role in the communication of something, in the achievement of something that was beyond our intentions. That's what I mean by saying, I think if you want to say the referendum result means X, Mm -hmm. there is a presumption there that some singular meaning is discernible. Mm -hmm. That's right. So this is what human beings do, right? We are meaning-seeking creatures, and very often that's useful, and very often it's correct. And I'm not saying there is no meaning at all to be taken from a referendum result, but I think errors start to arise when we seek to reduce the fact of a referendum result to a meaning, as though this is a necessary and sufficient explanation. Mm. So maybe we're both saying the same thing in slightly different ways, which is meanings and causes and factors proliferate here. And so it is probably true when you identify one of those meanings or causes or factors that you are correct in identifying that. Mm -hmm. That's right. But that it is only ever partial. Yet we tend to have a habit of making it complete, making it total. And I, I think that's a bit of a worry 
It's a worry, but it's also a byproduct of the specific mechanism of a referendum. Yeah, the nature of a referendum. Well, yes. And, and, when a Except- people, and when a people are placed at the center of the question, there, there yeah. is an opportunity for misunderstanding and meaning, not meaning making, but meaning communication. There is a communicative byproduct that is inseparable. I think. Well, except except the thing about a referendum is actually the lack of communication, right? All you get is an answer, a one-word answer, whether no or yes. Mm. That's it. But the answer is communicative. Yeah, but it communicates actually very little. Which is so it, why it communicates so much. That's the, that's well, the problem. Well, no, no, okay, but what's happening there is there's a lot of space for the imagination to fill. I don't mean in saying that, that this is an exercise of pure imagination, mm, right? mm, mm. but you're not dealing with a high court judgment where there are detailed reasons. That's right. You're dealing with something blunt, something that in some cases will come from the gut, something that in other cases will be quite finely reasoned, and yet it's a singular response. Mm. So to treat it as a, it, this is, I think, part of the reason that referenda almost always fail and this one I think was no different in this respect, in order to get to yes, you have to agree with everything along the way. In order to get to no, you need only disagree with or be unsure about one aspect of all the elements of the argument. Mm. And because people will be uncomfortable with or have been unpersuaded by different aspects, there will actually end up being a million variations on the reasons that people say no, yet the reasons people say yes tend to be unified because mm, actually what right. it means is they're on board with a particular argument and they follow it through to its conclusion. Mm. As I've brought so up no, se- several no times on, on the show. always win yeah. a referendum because referendum proposals tend to be that way, especially if they are something more than merely mechanical or administrative or dull. And I, here I, again, I invite you to look through the list of successful referenda in Australian history, and I think what you'll find is they are incredibly boring, right? So for that reason, no will almost always prevail, and those who are on the losing side of that referendum will be left to try to divine meaning from what is probably a huge array of factors and, and reasons. Okay. Look, I don't, I don't have any fundamental disagreement with, with any of that. I mean, we've talked about this enough uh, I was just going to say that you know one of the things that I've brought up on the show several times is Pierre Rosanvallon, the great French political theorist, his judgment that there is nothing that's easier to aggregate than rejection. You can reject something for a vast number of reasons. It can come out of thoughtlessness. It can come out of deep-seated prejudice. It can come out of a well-reasoned alternative agenda. But you put all those forms of rejection together and they all have precisely the same effect. But you're right. Yeah. When you're pursuing something, there needs to be a considerable amount of unanimity. There needs to be a substantial agreement, either at every step of the way or at significant signposts, let's just put it that way, um, which then yields something like consent, like agreement, like yes, and on it goes. Here's my slight, but I feel it may well be substantive disagreement. There were two attention-grabbing conclusions that followed the 14th of October. One was, from the no camp, this was Australia's Brexit moment. This was the repudiation on the part of grassroots, everyday Australians of progressive woke agenda. 
I lose track how many times I've heard that. I'm sure you're the same. Yeah. The other is this gets to the heart of Australia's identity. This shows that for all the progress that's been made, there is something closely resembling a kind of irredeemable rump of racists. It's the final demonstration that Australia cannot leave its colonial history and its history of colonial violence and oppression behind. I feel like rump is the wrong word there because the argument about a rump cannot apply to 60%. Yeah, but I don't think that's what we're really talking about here. It's that 20%. So just remember, when the referendum was announced in August 2022, the Levels of support, the percentages were roughly 60 in favor, 40 against. It was probably more like 65, closer to 70. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. Um, but then by the time you get to October 2023, that has quite literally reversed. There is something that has happened. In other words, there is a... But you understand that's common in referenda, though. Of course I do. Uh, once you get kind of closer to the moment of decision, but also once, if you like, the clarity of that's afforded by the original announcement, the enthusiasm that attends the original announcement. Once that begins to subside, once a degree of complexity, especially if there's substantive disagreement. Now, I think there are other things that go along with this that are really complicated, really, really complicated, which makes this particular referendum debate, I think, unlike many others that, that we've seen. Before we get to kind of the other things that might have been in play, and I do think cost of living, I do think in the informational environment, Believe it or not, I, I think the fact that the no case was headed by very strong, very prominent Aboriginal leaders, the idea that there is not unequivocal support for the voice, but the Aboriginal community is quote-unquote divided over this. It doesn't matter what the ratio is, the fact of division. And I, I do think as well that the idea that I have qualms about the voice, I worry that if I vote no it's going to come across as racist. But you see, other Aboriginal leaders also have qualms about the voice. The degree to which that gave a kind of solved conscience. I think there was something in that that was also important. Here's my thing, though, Willie. So just a few days ago, our dear mutual friend Stan Grant, during his 2023 Crawford Lecture at ANU, he said this, this world of callous politics where our humanity is polled and the tender complexity of our lives is reduced to a slogan or a choice, yes or no. This morning, I am hearing that word, no, a word without love, a word of rejection, a word from which no other word can come. This morning in the darkness, I'm hearing the cold-hearted no of a country so comfortable that it need not care, a country that feels right now soulless, a country of numbers, of no words but one, no. I can't say that Stan is wrong in a word of that. Because when you gather up the aspirations of a people that has come out of a painstaking multi-year deliberative process, an option, a proposal that is at once modest, maybe more modest than it should have been, certainly more modest than it was entitled to be, and that was open-handed. It was an invitation to the Australian people. When that has been bundled up and aspirationally put forward, and the response that comes is univocal, and that's what referendums do. They give a response that is univocal. 
There is no nuance. There is no rationale given. There is simply an answer to an offer. And when that answer is no, the communicative effect of that, despite the other factors that flowed into the result, despite the other rationales and reason that was given, whatever someone might have had a carefully, terribly well-reasoned constitutional basis upon which this is really a terrible idea or maybe even a principled disagreement. You can't solve problems in communities by centralizing a Canberra voice. All of those things may well be legitimate and they may all be argued in good faith. But when these things are bundled together and when that answer is given not to a process but to a people, the communicative effect cannot help but be devastating, which is why the arguments that are given and the intentions that are brought to bear, to some extent, they may well be relevant for the way that we think about the future of the country. But as a communicative act, they are irrelevant. And the first step, it seems to me, in any process of moving on with whatever it is this means and whatever it is we're supposed to do, the way that's supposed to shape the way that we speak to one another and listen to one another from here on in, there has to be that prior reckoning with the fact this no meant something decisive. And we had leaders and public figures in the lead up, as I predicted earlier this year, while leading our conversation with Mark McKenna, that we had leaders warning in the lead up to the referendum, do you know what a no will say to our communities? Do you know what a no will communicate to our kids about their place in this country? So I, I agree with you completely that I don't think the primary message, the primary takeaway is Australia is irredeemably racist or that we can't simply get past our colonial history. I, I don't think that necessarily follows. I think there are other things that are immensely complicated. But I think we can only say that when we've reckoned first with the fact that a referendum is univocal in the way that it communicates its response. And everyone who voted that way has to own for themselves a degree of responsibility, and in fact, more than that, a degree of complicity in what it is that that vote communicated to those who held out the offer in the first place. I don't really know what to make of that argument, because it sounds like you're actually saying two things, two opposite things at the same time. You're saying we cannot really extract a singular attitude or communication from a no mm. at the same time as you're saying, but this was a devastating communicative act because it communicated this. Mm. Okay. So the only way it seems to me to reconcile those two statements is to say that the actual meaning somewhere out there in the dark, perhaps undiscoverable is multiple chaotic involves goodwill and bad will, prejudice and well-wishing, reason and ignorance, all of these things. Mm. It's a kind of sea of all of this. That's what's actually out there. But what's actually out there doesn't really matter as far as what's communicated is concerned because particularly in a referendum like this where a people are at the centre of it, it will be understood a certain way. But even that resolution is an awkward one because that's kind of saying 
that what's inferred from this isn't true, but is nonetheless decisive. I don't know. Have I got that wrong? Is there another way you would reconcile yes. these two statements? Yes. I mean, okay. Well, what you've, is it? You've you've sharpened you've sharpened the point. It would be wrong to say that everybody who voted no was somehow, let's just put it, racially compromised, or that there was a racist seed that lay in the heart, or a, a racist kernel behind every vote. It would also be wrong to say that those who voted no are probably kind of secret assimilationists, that what we probably really want isn't to devolve responsibility or empowerment or agency back to indigenous communities, but we probably want something much more like the assimilationist agenda. Neither of those things may well be in the hearts of the people who voted a particular way. There might even simply have been thoughtlessness. And given how prominently cost of living pressures factored in the minds of people who began paying very, very, very little attention uh, to the debate and might even have felt incredibly resentful about the fact that a group of people was being privileged at the expense of everybody else. If you can hear the quotation marks around those words, I think that's going to be important. So all of those things may well be, in other words, thoughtlessness, uh, yeah, I, oh, I take the point okay. here, but get to the resolution bit. That's the okay. bit I'm interested in. But beyond that, it would be equally wrong, and I would say even more wrong, beyond someone's intentions to then say to Aboriginal peoples, this doesn't mean we're rejecting you or your proposal. There were no racial overtones. There were no racial consequences. This didn't draw upon a history of pain and trauma. This can be separated out from that and heard in a particular vacuum or as the result of a unique series of currents that all converged at a particular time. In other words, the intention may well not have been racist, but the communication was inextricably so. Yeah, this is where I, I just don't know that that way of resolving these things works. But that act of communication has got to be acknowledged. No, but that communication is inferred. It's not made, right? There is no actual communication. This is the problem with referenda. We've discussed yes, that's this right. endlessly, that's right. right? The problem with referenda is not that they are communicative. It is that they fail to be communicative. Which is why they are unequivocally communicative. That's the point. No, no, but the communication that comes from them is done by inference. Yeah, but see, okay, after Brexit, like, when, when swastikas were painted up on people, when immigrants were told to get out, you yeah. can't say that wasn't the message of Brexit. But you also can't say... I don't, I, yeah, I don't know about that, actually. Hmm. The way I would put it is this. That is a message of Brexit. As in, there is clearly a strand of that within the Brexit vote, okay? And that perhaps I should be careful about enlarging that strand. Mm. And I could also say I would well understand the anxieties and the fears of an immigrant who looks at that. Mm, that's right. Bearing in mind, there were probably quite a few immigrants who voted for Brexit. Of course. Yes, there were. Who looks at that and feels cut to the quick by it. I guess the only way I've been able to 
resolve these things that you've identified is to say, if I were you, if I were someone who had put my heart and soul into developing this proposal, that this had been, if not my life's work, then something approaching it. And it failed a referendum in the way that it did. And in the end, we'd have to say decisively. Then I may well feel the same way. And I would say, I can't deny you your response. Mm, That's right. That doesn't mean I agree with your analysis. But I can't deny you your response. Mm. I can't deny that you will have insights that I I don't. Beautifully said, William. But I also can't deny, and I say this for circumstances where I am at the centre of things as well, I also can't deny that my proximity to it in those circumstances doesn't allow me to see things that someone who is further removed can see and that something similar may be on operation here. But I don't deny your response. I'm not going to try to argue you out of a position or, or whatever. That said, there comes a point where we need to be careful about enlarging our responses to this too far. Mm, I agree. Because once we do that, I always thought in the lead up to this, you know that from the very start of this, just to put my cards on the table, once I saw the Uluru process, I saw the statement, I saw the proposal for a voice, my personal response was, yep, I'm on board with that. And my analytical response was, it's never gonna I can happen. never see how that will succeed in a referendum. Right? So that's just cards on the table, right? But my fear going into the referendum with the confidence that it was going to fail and then as the polls confirmed that that was what indeed was going to happen, my fear was that everyone would draw the wrong conclusions. Mm. Mm. So we've discussed at length the conclusion of disappointed yes voters and campaigners and so on. You mentioned in brief the response of no campaigners. This was a rejection of work politics, et cetera, et cetera. Completely erroneous, I think. Yeah, I agree. And what is, I think, intriguing to me, and this happens often in politics, is the way that the, the opposite poles of this argument end up actually, in a way, agreeing on their analysis of it. They just <laughs> agree. By, by overdetermining it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so while I have no interest, desire, and don't consider it my place to deny people who are in a lot of pain right now their response to that, at some point we need to pay attention to the overdetermination of things. Mm. Because what we may well do is bring into existence the kind of things that we're fearing. And I personally think, I don't think Peter Dutton takes any advice from me. I personally think it would be a huge error for him or for the coalition to think that this no vote has licensed something for them. Mm -hmm. And I say huge error in the moral sense, but also in the political sense. I think they would be misreading the electorate in doing that. And I think they would be pursuing a kind of politics that will only lead in the end to their failure. Mm. Unless, you know, other things intervene, a huge recession, all sorts of things could return them to power. I don't mean they can never return to power. I just mean what they shouldn't do is assume that people voted no for the reasons that they wished they voted no or would like them to vote no or that somehow reflect certain elements of the no campaign. I think this is a mistake that every Australian actually is potentially apt to make. And so once for me the referendum result was going to be, was relatively clear, that was, that was my fear. Yeah. Look, we're, we're on the same page with that, for sure. 
I, I would just say the sequence of responses matters. The sequence of responses matters. And um, time. And time. And time matters. That's right. Agreed. Yeah. All right. We have a guest. And we are very honored to have Teela Reed joining us on the show. She's a Wiradjuri and Welland woman, a lawyer and a First Nations practitioner in residence at Sydney Law School. She was a working group leader on the Section 5126 Race Power Clause in the Constitutional Dialogue process that culminated, in fact, in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And she, of course, was a campaigner for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament. Teela, thank you for joining us on The Minefield. Yama, thanks for having me on. Um, take it away. Uh, well, here we are. Post-referendum, I had the chance to listen to your little yarn there and attempt at an analysis about, you know, the meaning or the aftermath of such a significant question. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, with respect to First Nations communities, the one thing that was revealed, I think, in the results generally was overwhelmingly booth by booth. First Nations communities absolutely want their voices to be heard on behalf of the issues that their communities are confronting at the moment. So, you know, it's certainly been a bit of a difficult few weeks, but here we are. Can I ask you just one particular thing? This hasn't come up in any of the analysis or commentary, not during the referendum debate and not after, but it was something that worried me at pretty much every step of the way. So there was a degree of, let's just call it plausible deniability on the side of those who were ill-disposed towards the voice, whatever reason. There was plausible deniability that this would be the kind of thing that would, quote-unquote, really make a difference to people on the ground. So the plausible deniability was we have significant Aboriginal leaders saying, we doubt that it'll make a difference to people on the ground. But what often went alongside of that were forms of argument and expressions of rhetoric that I hadn't heard, I'm sure you have, since 1993, and the debates that surrounded the Native Title Act. The idea was... The Coming to take our property, etc. Yes, they're going to annex your swimming pools, your backyards. So it's a modest piece of legislation that's trying to give legislative effect to the Mabo ruling, but it's a Trojan horse. This is one of the reasons, Teela, that for, you know, despite the fact that I, I remain convinced that there were all sorts of things that fed into this, that fed into the result... The idea that this is all they're asking for, they, this is all they're asking for, but you don't know where it's going to lead. This is one of the reasons I found it really difficult at any stage of the debate to completely separate a degree of, let's just call it racial conspiratorialism that seemed to me to infect a great deal of the way it is we discussed the proposal. Well, certainly what we saw pan out was, I think, even a more amplified hysteria than what I imagine there was around the Mabo number two decision. And, you know, dissenters of The Voice clearly strategized the tactic of creating doubt, confusion among voters, which essentially, I think, um, had an impact on what we saw in the past 12 months are 60-40 for The Voice down to a 40-60 turnaround in support. 
And so, yeah, look, um, it's an interesting thing to discuss because you can take so many perspectives on this issue, but at the heart of the question of the referendum was really this concept of of recognition mm. of the First Peoples of this continent. And a lot of the public debate really, I think, clouded what should have been a very clear proposition. When we think about this notion of recognition here in Australia was, you know, attempted to be fit into and shrunk into a referendum process. But around the globe, we know, of course, that there are many different forms of recognition that Indigenous structures can can take form and structure with, whether that's treaty or First Nations parliaments or, you know, seats within parliament. It's certainly something that is familiar among many other liberal democracies. And I think the overwhelming no vote makes Australia definitely an outlier um, now when we attempt to compare ourselves to other like countries. And so, yeah, that, that notion of recognition, one of the interesting things that I observed in many different spaces, particularly even people who, you know, I would have genuine conversations with and even as an advocate for The Voice, they would be like, well, I am for recognition, but against The Voice. And that just didn't really add up to me, that kind of argument. You can't be, I think, it, it takes, a, in my view and in my opinion, a mission manager mentality. Like, you can't say you support this notion of recognition, but then slap down First Nations self-determination in the same breath. So, um, so can, sorry, can I just ask you to expand on that, Tila? Because why can't you? Why can't you say the concept of recognition I'm comfortable with, I'm even keen on? It's a question of the form it takes and the form of a new constitutional body that doesn't seem to have kind of clearly defined limits is not a form of recognition I feel it's prudent to support. If so you're you, saying you don't support it? Clearly Australia said that, yeah. No, but you or are we talking about the result now? No, no, I'm, yeah, I'm talking about the argument of someone who would say, I support recognition, but I don't support the voice. What they're saying is the concept of recognition I support, this form of it I don't. Why is that impossible in your mind? Why do you think that that's a completely untenable argument? So obviously those people have their own reasonings and to them they are valid and legitimate. In my opinion, when you're talking about concepts of recognition that are as enormous as resetting this kind of relationship between the first peoples of a continent and the nation state, the people of that nation state, it has to be in a way that is on an equal playing field, that enables structures of self-determination for First Nations peoples and the unprecedented process that underpinned this almost, you know, we almost got to one to two decades of this kind of work in in terms of recognition and and what form it should take. 
some Australians perhaps only really turned their mind to this this concept within the last year. But for many First Nations peoples, this has been an intergenerational conversation of how do we come to the table and assert our self-determination and accept as well, you know, the nation state. And where you have had First Nations peoples robustly consider this, and not just First Nations peoples, you've had some of the highest ranked lawyers and past judges, prime ministers in the country also scrutinise this recognition of First Nations voices um, concept. It is at odds in my mind that you would reject it in a way I think that Australians did because you can't say, for example, you are for First Nations but against hearing their voice if that's the form that Mm. was put on the table in good faith, in good faith of our pursuit of reconciliation. Um, I'm sure there can be many different interpretations of it, as you've already discussed. But when it comes down to this act of good faith, pursuit of, of wanting to, as many, even, you know, the Prime Minister said, a hand out in good faith as a gesture for the nation. Um, It really, in my view, is at odds with self-determination in this country, First Nations self-determination. Well, only only insofar as it would be inscribed via a constitutional body, like a new institution. I think for many people who ended up voting no, that was the sticking point, wasn't it? It was one of the big ones, yeah. Yeah, so it's not so much you know, they oppose Indigenous people having a voice. I think it was more they oppose the idea of putting something like, making something like that part of our constitutional arrangements. This was the no argument around it being divisive that I think those on the yes side didn't really appreciate and didn't grapple with. They sort of dismissed it. When they say it's divisive, what they mean, as far as as the best I could discern it, was it puts in the constitution a formally, so not substantially, formally differential relationship with the constitution and the state that different Australian citizens have. In other words, it places a racially and culturally exclusive body, exclusive body in the constitution. And my sense of it, and I I take this partly just from having watched sort of people who voted no talk about it, but also what pollsters who were polling these people said about it, that seems to have been the main thing. The contrast with the same-sex marriage vote, for example, was that that was a vote that was about giving everyone the same formal status. This was a vote that created differential formal statuses. Now, the argument against that that the S campaign was making, I understand fully well, but I'm not sure that they ever quite reckoned with the nub of that particular claim. And it's from that claim that you get the other subsidiary points, such as, you know, I support recognition, just not this form, et cetera, et cetera. In the end, I don't know, it just seems to me that that was the hurdle that was always going to be very, very difficult to clear, not because of a sort of determination to make a statement of rejection or 
or anything like that, though that was certainly present within the no vote. But just because that felt like something that, that was something quite radically transformative in the very notion of what our relationship with the constitution would be. And although the voice was a modest proposal, and I accept that as a general characterization, it was at the same time quite a radical one. I guess this is a point Stan Grant was making, right? And that was the thing that I think made it so difficult for it to succeed. Am I, am I wrong in that assessment? I think one of the issues in countering this notion from the no camp, which was, you know, claims of division, and I do not agree with that at all, was that in order to actually understand the reasonableness of the proposition of a voice in recognition of First Peoples, we have to really go back to the founding document itself. And, for example, what was already mentioned, I was a working group leader on Section 5126, the race power. And there is already division within the Constitution itself that separates Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And so trying to counter an argument like that actually it did require everyday Aussies to properly turn their mind not just to that kind of direct tagline of division or don't know, vote no, but in my view it, it revealed a bigger issue that we have in Australian society, which is a very poor understanding generally and, you know, whether this is as a result of our education from childhood right through to high school, university, is a lack of civics education within our society about how these system structures and institutions work. And the fact that Australia as a nation state was founded on our exclusion as Indigenous peoples by virtue of the anticipation that we would die out. Um, these were conversations that needed to be raised or perhaps even already had long ago in our formal education in the country to really properly be able to grapple with those kinds of arguments that were coming from uh, the no case. And so I outright reject, I think, legally and and politically, the idea that the voice would create division, in in our view, and, and it's heartbreaking to to witness the aftermath of all of this because having been in so many conversations with particularly elders and grassroots leaders and our people that had to grapple with our exclusion, I've always had to, you know. For example, I'm the first generation in my entire kinship, both my maternal and paternal kinships, to have the opportunity to be raised in a town because my ancestors were forced onto missionaries as a result of laws and policies. And so yeah. what one of the most heartbreaking feelings as a result of the, you know, this wasn't just a, mm, no, We'll, we'll come back to it later. This was this really was Australia's final word in relation to constitutional recognition of First Nations peoples um, that we do not belong in the Australian constitution. And that, that was palpable 
and excruciating to witness the decades of work be reduced to the polling on the night and how quickly the results come in because so many of the conversations across the continent in First Nations communities is that they wanted to improve decision-making, they wanted to improve this nation-building exercise to be part of a democracy that they believed in in a way that valued the diversity of their voices and not just from a deficit point of view, but from a view that our many, you know, thousands of years of being here could, as the Uluru Statement from the Heart says, you know, shine a greater expression of Australia's nationhood. And I think that got lost in the mainstream media, the misinformation, the disinformation, the confusion that a lot of Aussies um, were dealing with in terms of trying to understand and bring their mind back to the question and the purpose of a referendum as well. That was another big task ahead of us was that given the nation hadn't been to a referendum in over three decades, um, not only one, executing and communicating the importance of recognition as a form of voice, but helping Australians understand the purpose of a referendum and the process of a referendum, it brought additional challenges in addition to the fact that our nation had not yet dealt with this outstanding question of Indigenous recognition in the Constitution. So it certainly was a much more, uh, I think, and we know if we crunch the numbers and look at history now, nine of 45 referendums have failed. That Sorry, eight of 45 have succeeded, yes. yeah. Sorry, yeah. A lot more have failed than um, <laughs> They tend to fail, yes. But look, I think despite all of that, we accept now that the document of the Australian Constitution is for non-Indigenous Australia. It doesn't reflect us. And that was from the outset of its founding. And I think Australians had the final word of that on October 14th. Despite that, we will continue to move towards our self-determination, our rights as Indigenous peoples, not just of this ancient continent, but of the globe. And that will never stop us. We are sovereign First Nations peoples. And I think we can put the issue aside of constitutional recognition and we keep moving forward in revitalising our communities, building our kinships. And I think, you know, asserting the fact that we always have and always will be here. Thank you, Tila. I, I would just say you used the terms kind of good faith and bad faith before. I'll just sort of underwrite one thing you said. There does seem to me to be something in bad faith, almost intrinsically, for there to be a commissioning process whereby First Nations people are asked what form of recognition not just carries the overwhelming assent of the communities, but is also meaningful in the way that it folds into it processes of truth-telling of listening and of constructive kind of community-focused assistance and self-determination. There is something inherently bad faith about asking 
what form of recognition is meaningful. And then when that form of recognition is then put to kind of popular assent for it to be said, no, but we are not happy with that, but other forms of recognition would be fine with us. I think that there's the kind of the moral calculus that's involved in that is really problematic. I just don't think that's fair to say, Scott. I can, I can understand why you would say it, but the logical extension of what you're saying there is that whatever was asked for would have to no, receive assent. That's assuming that what was asked for came out of nowhere, came out of the no, clear no, no, blue no, no, sky. No, 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 but, it, but it's possible, isn't it? It was a process say... that was politically framed. It was politically commissioned and it was politically framed. It was given full due diligence, not just politically speaking, but legally. I'm going to yeah, stick... but what you're saying is that that commands assent, right? No, it makes it impossible to say, I'm for recognition, just not on your terms. Or not on those terms. No, not on your terms. I think that's, that's the point. Yeah, and, but, but the, believe me, I understand the point you're making, right? I'm not, it's not that I'm unsympathetic to it. I'm just wary in these instances because this is so flammable. I'm wary of overstatement. Mm-hmm. If, if what you're saying, people were saying, is not on your terms, then really we have to flesh that out. It's not that I object to them being on your terms because they're your terms. It's just that I cannot get on board with this particular proposal. There is a distinction there, right? It may not be a distinction that you share. It's not the side of the argument I fall down on. But that is a distinction. And I, I just worry a little bit about this idea of saying, well, once we say this is the kind of recognition that we want, that you are rejecting the whole concept of recognition. Well, maybe not the whole concept, but the other side of that, it cuts both ways. Mm. It says Mm. then that, well, we will continue to impose what our view of recognition Mm. ought to be despite what you said or despite the culmination of that work. And so I think that there is a deeper issue here at the heart of our democracy that we haven't really grappled with. And that is how now do we move forward in good faith? Mm. Because for too long, as the First Nations peoples of this continent, we have had policies imposed upon us, things said about us, without us. And that is clearly why we have this now, I think, an ongoing process of colonisation that refuses to genuinely hear us, to genuinely be bound by acts of good faith. And so while you can say that, Waleed, and there is that counter position, I don't think it comes from a place that genuinely is respectful of the fact that First Nations peoples ought to self-determine their futures. This is not something that's radical. Like, let's not get it wrong about this. The, the amendment itself that I think got lost in the debate too, this was simply a proposition to probably the most basic democratic proposition around the globe to ma- may make representations may make representations, which were the words essentially to be inserted into the amendment. And look, they could have been ignored. 
and the counter to this as well is that people go, well, no, but I still want genuinely something for First Nations peoples. Well, hello, you know, the week after the referendum failed, those people that voted apparently no in good faith, did they know we had another Aboriginal death in custody? Were they speaking up about that? Because that cut through our communities like nothing else. Mm. And so here now we have a nation that I think, in my opinion, has shrunk itself, has refused to look in the mirror at history and instead turn in the opposite direction. I mean, there are lots of questions for our nation about where do we go from here. And even Marcia Langdon has said that that's it. Reconciliation is dead in this country. You can't continually say to a peoples that are the oldest surviving continuous peoples on the planet that, hey, oh yeah, no, look, you said this, but we said no, but we'll go back to the drawing board. It was also an attempt by Dutton in the middle of the campaign to be like, I might, you know, I'm thinking we'll hold another referendum. That was not a strategy in good faith. And so our communities are essentially not just grappling with the aftermath of a single constitutional question and an outright rejection of the recognition of our voices, but the fact that we went to the drawing table in good faith, proposed an idea that we had hope that our nation could build together. And now we are left with a situation where we have seen it. We have seen people say to us, we all vote no, we're for recognition, but against the voice. Well, what next? No one has come back to that table in anything that I guess we can share a future nation building vision on. And it has to be said, it has to be said that the leader of the opposition who led the no case for the many reasons we saw play out uh, particularly since the beginning of the year. And then within the same breath, as we were still picking up the pieces in our communities, dealing with our kinship, our kids, and the awfulness that our elders had just stepped through, the claims that there ought now to be just another Royal Commission into particular remote communities, like it is, really mm. feels like this process that continually enforces its ideas on us without us is getting to a point where we have to step up and reject these arguments that essentially gaslight our communities and say one thing but do another. And I hope, I do hope, because I have a lot of faith in the next generation of First Nations leaders, that we can carve out a pathway and a strategy forward for all of us on this continent because we have to live here. And the hope written in the Uluru Statement was makarata for peace, for the coming together after a struggle. And it feels now that we're almost at a point that's not just the status quo, but potentially decades of what could be worse in Indigenous affairs. And our communities cannot survive or thrive in a climate where we are told we want to listen but we're not going to act. 
when it comes to what you say. So yeah, look, this has been this has been a really hard time for many of us. There's also been a lot of non-Indigenous allies who felt very deeply about this issue as well. And we have, we now know we've got, you know, five and a half million Australians who voted yes with us. And that's an upswell. That's an upswell of Aussies walking with us on this side of history. And I think that as well we can take away is, is something worth taking away from this this moment in time. Scott, any last words you want to add? My concern about where we go from here isn't so much, I guess, internal to our politics or even a matter of kind of in good conscience settling accounts with Australia's history. It may well be that the informational environment that we are living in is so chaotic that every civil society organization in Australia, Peter Lewis from The Guardian pointed this out, every civil society organization, every faith, every NGO, every significant social body within our country was unified in support for the voice. And it didn't matter. And it may well be that the communicative environment in which we live is so fractured, is so fragmented, that even those fundamental bonds of civic solidarity, let's put it, and the role that civic institutions play within our common life and helping us organize around matters of common concern. It may well be that those things simply are going to be irrelevant <laughs> for the future and that from here on in, it's essentially every person living within their own communicative universe trying to make sense of what an agenda should be in the midst of a chaotic and confusing informational world. Yes, it makes it hard to build anything, really. Yeah, that's right. Tilo, we've been honoured to have you. Few people are as well-placed to share their insights and thoughts as you, so it's been much to our benefit. Thank you so much for sparing some time and some heart as well. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Tila Reid, we're a jury and whalebone woman, lawyer and First Nations practitioner in residence at Sydney Law School, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.